Um, and if you have a Bible to hand, uh, whether you've got a, an electronic one or a physical one, um, please do grab one and turn to Ezra chapter 10. Uh, as Tom mentioned, we're, we're coming to the end of our series uh, in the book of Ezra, and it's the final chapter. And just to mention, as you're looking that up, what we normally tend to do at the end of a series is we, um, we know that we can't cover everything in, in the preaching um, so we want to give you time and space to be able to ask questions about it. So uh, after, after the service this afternoon, um, you can grab some food. And then if you head into the room just behind me here, uh, Johnny and I will be sitting there um, to take any questions that you might have, uh, whether that's from the sermon today or from previous sermons you've heard over the, the last few weeks. So, um, so please do, do take that up uh, if you'd like to. But Ezra chapter 10. Um, let me read the whole chapter And then we're going to dive into it together. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. So Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what has been suggested. And they took the oath. Then Ezra, Ezra withdrew from before the house of God and went to the room of Jehoanan, son of Eliashib. While he was there, he ate no food and drank no water because he continued to mourn over the unfaithfulness of the exiles. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property in accordance with the decision of the officials and elders and would himself be expelled from the assembly of the exiles. And within three days, all the men of Judah and Benjamin had gathered in Jerusalem. And on the 20th day of the ninth month, all the people were sitting in the square before the house of God, greatly distressed by the occasion and because of the rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, You are right, we must do as you say. But there are many people here, and it is the rainy season, so we cannot stand outside. Besides, this matter cannot be taken care of in a day or two, because we have sinned greatly in this thing. Let our officials act for the whole assembly. Then let everyone in our towns who has married a foreign woman come at a set time, along with the elders and judges of each town, until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, son of Asahel, and Jaziah, son of Tikvah, supported by Meshulam and Shabbatai, the Levite, opposed this. So the exiles did what was proposed, as was proposed. Ezra the priest selected men who were family heads, one from each family division, and all of them designated by name. On the first day of the tenth month, they sat down to investigate the cases. And by the first day of the first month, they finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women. Among the descendants of the priests, the following had married foreign women. From the descendants of Joshua, son of Josedek, and his brothers, Maseah, Eliezer, Yarib, and Gedaliah. They all gave their hands in pledge to put away their wives, and for their guilt they each presented a ram from the flock as a guilt offering. From the descendants of Immer, Hananiah, and Zebediah. From the descendants of Harim, 
Maaseiah, Elijah, Shemaiah, Jehiel, and Uzziah, from the descendants of Pashur, Elioni, Maaseiah, Ishmael, Nathaniel, Jozebad, and Elisar. Among the Levites, Jozebad, Shimei, Kelai, that is Kelita, Pethathiah, Judah, and Eliezer. From the musicians, Eliashib. From the gatekeepers, Shalom, Telem, and Uri. And among the other Israelites, from the descendants of Parosh, Ramiah, Isaiah, Malkijah, Mijamin, Eleazar, Malkijah, and Benaiah. From the descendants of Elam, Mataniah, Zechariah, Jehiel, Abdi, Jeremoth, and Elijah. From the descendants of Zatu, Elioni, Eliashib, Mataniah, Jeremoth, Zabad, and Azaziah. From the descendants of Bebai, Jehoanan, Hananiah, Zabai, and Athliah. You still with me? From the descendants of Bani, Bani Meshulam, Maluk, Adiah, Jashub, Sheal, and Jeremoth. From the descendants of Pahath Moab, Adna, Kelal, Benaiah, Messiah, uh, Maaseiah, Mataniah, Bezalel, Binui, and Manasseh. From the descendants of Harim, Eliezer, Ishijah, Malkijah, Shemaiah, Simeon, Benjamin, Maluk, and Shemariah. From the descendants of Hashem, Mataniah, Matata, Zabad, Eliphalet, Jeremiah, Manasseh, and Shimei. From the descendants of Bani, Madai, uh, Amram, Uel, Benaniah, Bediah, Keluihai, Benaiah, Meramoth, Eliashep, Mataniah, Matane, and Yasu. From the descendants of Binui, Shimei, Shelemiah, Nathan, Adiah, Machnadabai, Shashai, Sharai, Azarel, Shelemiah, Shemariah, Shalom, Amariah, and Joseph. From the descendants of Nebo, we're almost there. Jael, Matitia, Zabad, Zebina, Jadai, Joel, and Benaiah. All these had married foreign women, and some of them had children by these wives. Now I know how Johnny felt when he had to read all the names in chapter 2. It was even longer than this. So, um, Okay, as we start, let me just say something. This is a really hard passage. I've been grappling with this this week, and it's been really difficult. It's a bit like, as, as Tom was saying, Ecclesiastes, you see some good things and bad things, like disappointment. There's good stuff in this passage that we can learn from, and there's some stuff that's really ugly. But we've got to know that this is God's word. It's here for a reason. It's here to teach us something. And so the way I'm going to do it this afternoon is I'm going to take what is good, the things that we can learn from Ezra 10 that is good for us to learn. But at the end, then I want to reflect on the things that are ugly, that are hard, that are disappointing. Because I think we need to see both sides of that in this chapter. So that's the plan. So let's dive right in. Chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, it sets the scene. If you weren't with us last week, it's a continuation of what was happening last week. So you see here, verse 1, Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God. And a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. If you cast your mind back to last week, if you were with us, there was this big threat to the rebuild and restoration of God's temple and his people. This is what Ezra has been about. God had initiated this great return for the exiles to rebuild the temple and say, Look, I'm going to dwell with my people once again in the promised land. But we saw last week that there was a deep problem in the hearts of humanity, in the hearts of God's people. They were drawn towards sin and idol worship. And that was represented by the way the people of God had intermarried with the local people around them, who were all idol worshippers. Remember, this was nothing to do with race or ethnicity. There were, the problem wasn't the women or about marriage itself. It's all about holiness, the distinctness of the people of God. That was at stake. 
The people of God were called to be set apart, to be distinct from the surrounding nations in how they were to worship the one true living God of the Bible and to live according to his ways. And Ezra 9 showed us the seriousness of the intermarrying and yoking with all these idol worshippers. And Ezra himself is so deeply troubled to the point that he is weeping, mourning, and throwing himself down about the sin among the people. Ezra chapters 9 and 10, it's an absolute mess. And a huge threat to everything we've seen about rebuilding and restoring the temple and the relationship that God has with his people. It's like a tiny spark. What happens when a spark catches fire? See, within moments, it turns into flames that can consume and destroy. That is the threat of sin to this rebuilt temple, to the restored relationship of God with the people. And I want us to have that image in our minds as we go through this passage. The image of fire. Not one that's nice and controlled like a little candle, but one that is destructive, dangerous, and consuming. Ezra is like that person who's desperately crying out to the people, look, fire, fire. That was his great confessional prayer last week. And you see here, the people are starting to pay attention. There's this man, Shechaniah, he's one of them. He too starts shouting, fire, fire. Do you see that? In verse 2, he says, we have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women, just as Ezra had said before. See, the people are starting to see this issue. And here's a question that Ezra 10 asks of us. What are we to do when there is fire? How do God's people respond to the mess of sin with our, the temptation of idols in our hearts? When we repent and confess, as Ezra did last week, what are we then supposed to do? That's the good stuff that we're going to see in Ezra 10. And I just want to point out three things here. Here's the first thing. You've got to know where to go. When there's a fire, you need to know where to go. If you've ever been to a, a conference or a you know, weekend away or something, you know when you all gather and there's lots of people, normally what happens is they'll tell you what happens when there's a fire. That reminds me, we're supposed to say that to you. Okay, in case of a fire, there are lots of exits here, 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 here. Just go out those doors and it's fine. Just congregate in the playground. It won't happen. Don't worry, it's fine. Um, but like, honestly, what do people do? When those things happen, what do you do? Most people glaze over. When flight attendants do their safety things, you know, here comes the oxygen mask and the safety belts and everything, what, what do most people do? Glaze over. But Ezra 10 is saying, look, you need to rely, re- realize how important those moments are. Because when the fire actually happens, you need to know where to go. So pay attention next time the flight attendants are showing you where the exits are. But more importantly, look at where Shechaniah points us. This is where he wants us to see where to go. At the end of verse 2, do you see he says, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Here's where we need to go. Now let us make a covenant before our God. Shechaniah is saying, look, you need to go and remember the covenant promise of God. Much of this book of Ezra has been all about restoring and reconfirming not just the temple, not just the law, but what those point to, which is the covenant promise of God. Covenant is a Bible word. It just means that this is the great promise of God that he made to his people. 
to Abraham thousands of years ago that God would establish a people to himself in a promised land and live with them and bless them into eternity. And here was that great return for the exiles. Look, the reinstatement of the covenant shown by how the temple was being rebuilt and the law was being brought back. And so Shechaniah is saying, look, we need to go back to that. Because in that promise of God, what do we see? We see that God is ever faithful. That is where we need to go. That is where we need to, what we need to see. See, one of the ways you can summarize this book, the Bible, is simply this. This book is about the repeated failures of God's people, time and time again. Ezra is showing that yet again the people fail. And yet this book also shows us the unchanging faithfulness of God, who despite the repeat failures of his people, the disappointments, the repeated intermarrying of the, uh, with idol worshippers around them, God says, I will never let you go, because my promise is good. I am faithful. Here's Shechaniah's simple call. Come back to God. And how does, he, how does he show us how to do it? See how he carries on verse 3. Look how it ends. Let it be done according to the law. That's his answer. Come back to the law. Come back to the word of God at the heart of the covenant promise. That word, the word of God, it reminds us of God's utter holiness. His distinction relative to all the other idols that this world offers. This is how we see that God is the one true God, how God is ever faithful to his people, and how we are called to live distinctly as his holy people. That is why it was so important that Ezra brought the law back into Jerusalem in chapter 7. So here's one of the foundational kind of applications, first steps for us. When you're stuck in your sin, when you're stuck in idol worship, we repent and confess as we saw in Ezra last week. But then don't just go back to live as you lived before. But break the cycle. Sin, confess, repeat. Sin, confess, repeat. Break that cycle. How? By coming back to his word. Come back to listen to God. Hear from him through his word. Be reminded of his faithfulness and his promise to his people. Be reminded once again of the promise of Christ that by his blood you are forgiven, no longer condemned. Guilt, washed, shame, covered. Be reminded of the promise of the Spirit who enables and equips us to fight in the battle with sin. Be reminded of the promise of the Father that by faith we are clothed in Christ's righteousness now, in his robes. That as we live and walk with him by faith, there will be a day when we will finally be free from the chains of sin, from the power of guilt and shame. Now this is not easy by any means. In Ezra's time, in the law, it was stated clearly to the people, do not intermarry with those around you who are idol worshippers. You see that in Deuteronomy 7, Joshua 23, Exodus 34, and many other places. And so they say, look, in order to move away from this sin, we need to separate ourselves from this threat of idol worship. How do we do that? We separate from the wives and the children. This is what is so ugly about this scene. It's possibly one of the ugliest scenes in Scripture. I'm going to come on to talk about the women and children a little bit later on, so hold that thought if you can. But I want us to see how painful, how hugely emotive and devastating this is. 
here's the thing. When we turn from sin, when we try and uproot our idols and seek holiness, it is often really hard. Especially when it's so deep-rooted in us. Remember the rich young ruler who came to meet Jesus? He was a good guy, right? He was charitable. He kept some of the laws. And he comes and he asks Jesus, how do I, how do I inherit eternal life? And what does Jesus say? He knows his deep-rooted idol. And he says, sell all you have and come and follow me. How does he react? This guy is devastated. He is torn because it's so hard for him. See, when God's word confronts us, it's deeply challenging. It's so hard to turn from our idols, from that temptation. And I know this is true for so many of you in this room. You battle greatly. But listen to Shechaniah, listen to Ezra. You need to know where to go, to the God who is ever faithful in your battles and temptations. See, what is that big idol or that sin that you struggle with? We will have at least one, I'm sure. Maybe it is money, like the rich young ruler. Maybe it's the area of lust and sexual temptation. Maybe it's the desire to have control or to have everyone like you. My prayer is that you would see that like Shechaniah and you would know where to go. That you would confess, repent, and then come back to God's word and be reminded once again of his great promise to you. That there is true forgiveness and mercy at his feet. That there is something better than anything this life can offer as Tom reminded us earlier, that there is freedom and full life in him and in him alone. And that this would mean our lives will be different and distinct to the rest of the world, even if it's painful and it's hard. So that's the first thing, nowhere to go. But the second is this, rise up and take courage. Here's the thing, when you hear someone crying, imagine if someone stood up and suddenly said, fire, fire to all of us here. And you start seeing smoke and flames. You don't just sit there, right? What do you do? You move. You stand up. You go. Either that, you get, or, or some of us will be a bit, oh, let's go, let's go for it. Um, men and women will get up and they'll get water and fire blankets and try and fight with it. Fine, you can do that. Me, I'm going to run. I'm out. Either way, what you do is you take action. Don't just sit there. See that in verse 4, Shechaniah says, after all of this, he says to Ezra, look, rise up. This matter is in your hands. We will support you, so take courage and do it. Shechaniah moves from the promise and word of God into encouraging Ezra to rise up and fight. And as Ezra then rises up as a leader, he takes courage, and the people then follow to take action. But here's the point. We are called to take action against our sin. We're not simply called to confess, read God's word, and then carry on our lives as before. No, we are called to act, to flee sin, to fight sin. That is what the people do here in Ezra chapter 10. They gather with the leaders and they take action to separate themselves from their idolatry. But here's the difference between us and the people back then in Ezra's time. Today, we don't live under the shadow of the law. But today, we live under the shadow of the Almighty who fulfilled the law who lived it out perfectly. We live in the shadow of the cross of this great law fulfiller who not only prayed and mourned and mediated on behalf of his people, for people like us, but who laid his life down for us. 
who took on our sin as his own, who went way further than Ezra could ever have done, who took on our unfaithfulness and instead gave us his perfect faithfulness to God. We live in the shadow of Christ, who promised his Holy Spirit to guide us, to be with us, to help us to fight. And it's through this grace, through the power of the Spirit, that we are called today as his church to rise up, take courage, and fight sin. Here's some of these, these from, from the letters we see in the New Testament. James chapter 4, he calls us to resist the temptation of the devil who tempts us to fall in sin. Colossians 3, 5, Paul calls the church, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And then he lists a load of sins. Paul says more specifically sometimes, 1 Corinthians 6, flee from sexual immorality. This is a call for us today as Christians to take action against sin. Against idolatry. Now, it, this doesn't mean that we will completely overcome every sin battle that we face in this lifetime. But in our sin, we know that Christ is with us. And with him, we will grow in our fight and see more and more that we are headed towards glory, where those sins will never be an issue ever again. The Bible word for that is sanctification, if you're interested. It just means us becoming more and more like Christ. So let me ask you this. If you're batting with a particular sin at the moment, confess it, remember his promise to you, but then ask God to help you fight it, to give you the strength to rise up, to take courage and to act, to not be stuck in the depths of shame or be paralyzed by the chains of guilt, but to rise up. And let me tell you, in your sin and idolatry, you can lift your head up. Why? Not in your own strength, or your own wisdom, or your 15-point plan to overcome something, but because of Christ. See him there who nailed your sins to the cross. Know that in Christ we are forgiven. See his strength and power that overcame the grave, that through Christ we can overcome all, even death. If there is a particular sin that is a battle for you right now, how could you take action to fight it? Here are some things that I suggest. What passages of, the, of Scripture could you memorize to help you in that area? So that they are the first thing that comes to mind whenever you face that temptation. What prayers could you be praying throughout the day whenever those temptations come so you call upon the Spirit, our wonderful counselor, our great helper, our great advocate? What other practical things could you put in place to help you in areas of temptation? Are the ways you can manage your time, the way you use your devices, the things you watch and consume through media, the people you hang out with. Now, the practical things, they're not going to save you, but there is wisdom in having fences around those things that tempt us. But here's the point, Ezra 10 is showing us. Look, rise up, take courage, and take action. But here's the third thing, final thing. To push this a little bit further, Ezra 10 calls us to act together. If you're in a fire, if we're in a fire here, we don't try and fight it alone, right? Tom's brave. He might do a good job on his own. But if it's big, I'm pretty sure he'll struggle. But if we had 50 people getting water, getting sand, getting fire blankets, we could fight. Or if you're trying to escape and batter down a fire escape door, it's much easier to do it a few people rather than just one. You get the point? 
I find this really stark in this passage. There is a real togetherness and oneness of the people of God here. Did you notice as I read those names, as I struggled through those names in verses 18 to 44, they sounded like a lot, right? If you actually count them, there are only 111 names there. There are about 40 to 50,000 people who returned from exile. Now, if you're good at maths, and you can work it out, it's about 0.3% of the people. Pretty small percentage. So you might sit there thinking, what's the fuss about? There are not that, not that many people who are caught up in this. But we've got to remember, firstly, the seriousness of sin. It might, still, it might be a small spark, but when the fire catches, it spreads fast like contagion. Before you know it, things are consumed. So dealing with sin, no matter how small, is so crucial, especially because sin leads to unfaithfulness to God. That is the big issue at stake. And it's especially a problem here because the leaders are complicit in it. In fact, not just complicit, but they're leading the way and going astray. Flick back to chapter 9, verse 2, and you see it there. They have taken some of the daughters and wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them, and the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. You come back to chapter 10. You look at the list of names, verse 18. Among the descendants of who? The priests. Man, it's the leaders. Our culture is suspicious of authority. I get that. Because leaders have influence to, to lead astray or lead the right way. And it's suspicious because too often leaders lead astray. And we've seen that a lot in the church in the last few years. Leaders and their sin really matter. They need to be held to account. And this is the thing about Ezra 10. In all of this, Ezra 10 teaches something of the oneness of the people of God as we fight sin together. See, I think often with our sin, our instinct is to try and deal with it quietly and privately. See, Ezra could have gone to each individual person and, and sorted it out. And sometimes that is the right thing to do. I get that. But there's something in here in how the people come together, the leaders and people alike, to own it together and respond together. Collective responsibility. Did you notice it's not just Ezra who speaks up, but this guy called Shechaniah. And then Ezra goes to a place with Jehoanan to keep praying. There are a couple of people already mentioned who are involved in this process. Then we see loads of people gathering all the time. Look at verse 1. They too wept bitterly. The men, women, and children all gathered. They weep bitterly. They mourn together. Verse 5, you see the, the leading priests and the Levites all come together to take an oath with the people. Verse 7, all these people assemble to, to deal with this sin issue. And then look at verse 12. The whole assembly, everyone gathered there, responded with a loud, what did they say? You are right. We must do as you say. They agree to take action. 0.3%, but everyone agrees to take action. Do you see the beauty when they act together? I was really challenged by this. There is, there is great unity. Here's a sub-point. There is great unity here in our fight against sin. See, often people ask me, why is the church so divided? Actually, do you know what? It's often, most often my non-Christian friends, those who don't follow Christ, who ask me that. Because they look at that and they think, I don't want to be a part of this thing. Maybe that's you today. You're sitting here wondering about Christianity. And you've seen that. As Christians, we often talk about unity in the church, unity around this issue or that issue or around the gospel. But even then, when you push, I'm like, people have different emphases of who Jesus is and the gospel. And then as I was reading Ezra 10, here's the challenge. 
See, do you know one of the greatest areas of unity that the church can have? It's in this area of acknowledging sin together. Not that we're, we're responsible for each other's sin, but that when we see one of our brothers or sisters trapped in the flames of sin, we don't just leave them behind. We do our best to grab them, to point them to where to go, to fight with them. See, sometimes there's this danger, I think, in our hearts. When our walk with Jesus is good, we see someone else struggling with sin or temptation. We sort of think, oh, what a shame, but at least I'm okay. Or worse yet, you say, why do they struggle with that when I don't? But here you see God's people come together for 0.3%. They know the oneness of God's people. And as a bunch of sinners, they come together to say, you know what? Our brothers and sisters have fallen. We rally, we pray, we fight together. This is hugely powerful. Because the people, as they gather here, they don't judge each other. It flattens any pride that we might have in thinking, I don't struggle with that sin. Instead, it realizes that, look, at any one point in time, I or another sister or brother may fall, may battle with sin. It stops any judgment. But then it provides the grounds for our deepest unity because why? It points us to where we need to go, to the only hope that we have. It brings us to praise Christ who came to die and redeem us altogether from our sin. To worship him rightly who is the greatest and the only solution to our deepest problem. It brings us together in genuine unity around our Savior, Jesus. And it protects us from the most destructive area of disunity, of sin in the human heart. And when we have this view of Jesus, I think secondary issues, whatever we call them, they genuinely become secondary issues. And it starts right here with a big view of our sin. I know that's heavy and hard, but it's true. I think that's what Ezra 10 is showing us. And I wonder if as a church, we need to think about this more carefully. I know there, there will be differences in the way we see things and do things and think about things. But do we need to go deeper than just our superficial theological differences that divert away from the real problem in the depths of our hearts? Do we need to be reminded more of how we all really do need Jesus more as our Savior than anything else? The second thing we see with this kind of unity of these people is there's accountability in the fight for sin. In verse 16 and 17, they start this investigation into who's gone and intermarried. And then they start listing the people of names. That's the stuff I read out. But don't think of this as like a Twitter sort of, you know, at Gedaliah, at Eliezer, shame on you. That's not what's going on. This is done within the confines of God's people, within the church. This isn't about naming and shaming, but verse 19, do you see how these people who are named, they give a pledge to give a guilt offering, to say, I hold up my hands and, and declare publicly, look, I have sinned, I've done wrong, I'm coming before God in this. This is more about accountability within a setting of a church family that helps us to bring, helps to bring people in and alongside one another. See, I've noticed when people struggle and battle with a particular temptation or idol or sin, Often people give this sort of advice. They say, pray to God and then tell another Christian about it. See, there is something in accountability in knowing a brother or sister is walking and praying with you through the battle, who can challenge you and check in on you when you need it. Now, again, it's not appropriate to share with everyone all the time, 
We can't have an open mic night where we all stand up and just take it in turns. But in the right context, it's such an encouragement in our fight against sin. Let me give you a good example of this. Last Saturday, we had our Globe Talks Pornography Seminar. There are some 60, 70 people there. And there was something in the way that Rob, John, and Marika bravely shared their struggles and experience of pornography that brought those people there in the church family into their struggle and into their sin. Whether it's a struggle for us or not, it drew us to come alongside them, to pray with them, to want to check in with them going forwards. So here's a challenge for us this afternoon. Maybe you can do this after the service. Where, where are you ready to listen to a brother or sister? Where are you ready to share with a brother or sister so we can fight together? I'd love us to do that as a church more. We talk about being family a lot, and I think in many ways we do a great job, but, but I want to push us to go deeper as a Christ-led, Christ-centered family that bears one another's burdens, particularly in the areas of sin and idolatry. Let's walk and keep in step with the Spirit and push towards a family that wants to walk and help those who struggle, who battle around us, who want to hold each other accountable in a healthy way. Be a part of a prayer triplet. Get in a three or a four where you can share this openly with people regularly. If you're not part of one, find Katia. She will help you or, or grab me. Do this in your focus groups. Well, you know what? Pray after the service. There are brothers and sisters who sit there every Sunday wanting to pray with you. Use them. Ezra 10 calls us to action in the face of our sin. Nowhere to go to. Go back to God's faithful promise in his word. Rise up and fight. Take action against our sin. And let's do it together. Take action together. Now look, that's all the positive stuff that we see in chapter 10. And I hope that's helped us in some ways to think about how we battle with our sin. But I want us to take a step back for a minute as we close. Because with all the good stuff that's going on in Ezra 10... As I read it this week and I grappled with it, I felt hugely uncomfortable. And I wonder if you did too as I read it. Did you find it massively unsettling? I mean, the, there's, the bits about rain is quite funny, right? But I think it's there to capture the dark, dreary mood of what is going on here. And that's partly because I think we have a small view of our sin. It's unsettling when we get confronted by God's word. But the flip side of that, the other side of that is, is we just can't escape how ugly this scene is. The idea of forcing divorce on people en masse sounds extreme. And some, I get some of us in this room right now hearing this, is, they're going to find it hard. And you sort of ask, is that, what God, is that what God would want? Let me just clarify this as an important side note. God hates divorce. He says that clearly, Malachi 2.16. And Jesus goes on in the New Testament to affirm exactly that. In Mark 10, in Matthew 19, he makes it clear that divorce is only there because of the hardness of your hearts. That it's not right for Christians to divorce in pretty much any instance. Matthew gives an exception in the case of marital unfaithfulness. Paul goes on, Peter goes on, 1 Corinthians 7 for Paul, 1 Peter 3 for Peter. To speak of if two unbelievers are married and one of them becomes a Christian, a believer, you're not to divorce. You're called to live on in that marriage in Christ so that they may see the beauty and be drawn to him. 
Now, we can pick up more of this in the Q&A if you'd like to. But it's clear, look, Ezra 10 cannot be used as a justification for us to divorce. It's a unique situation in the history of God's people. And it's ugly. One person said it was a situation where the lesser of two evils had to be chosen. And I find it really hard to think, for a book about rebuilding and restoring God's temple and his people and his covenant, to end with a list of people who are named and shamed into divorce, and then to end particularly with verse 44, all these had married foreign women and some of them had children by these wives. In other translations, the children and the wives were sent away. You take an even, even bigger step back and you ask, okay, what about the prophecies about Israel? Israel, they were called to be a light to the nations after their exile. Isaiah 49, a great example. There are prophecies that Gentiles would come from all the nations and drawn to worship in Jerusalem at a temple and be saved. But here it seems like the exact opposite is happening. This book ends in utter disappointment. And this is actually the cycle of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's actually one book in the Hebrew. Everything starts promising but ends in disappointment. The temple being re rebuilt was promising, but remember in chapter 3, when they laid the foundations, there was weeping because the foundations were so puny. And you get to chapter 6, and the temple's rebuilt, but where is the glory of God? It's disappointing. Then Ezra returns with the second wave of exiles. Then he brings back the Lord, hopeful again. But we've just seen here, Disappointment. The people of God fail again. It's an ugly mess. If you read on in Nehemiah, they come back to build the city walls to read God's law, but a similar pattern of disappointment. People again start to intermarry. The temple is in disarray, and the kids can't even speak Hebrew. They don't even understand God's word anymore. Ezra and Nehemiah is one of the last books before the 400 years of silence for God's people, and this is how it ends. Ezra is a book with glimmers of hope that end in disappointment. But I think that's the point. It's meant to tell us it doesn't end here. The story of God's people does not end here, and that is why this points us to hope. Because 400 years later, you hear the words of Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Zerubbabel in Ezra's time. The remnant had to survive for Jesus to come. For Jesus to come as the word of God in the flesh who embodies this law that Ezra carried back and fulfills it beyond what Shechaniah and Ezra could ever do. Jesus who comes to draw in the nations, even the Samaritans we saw in Ezra 4 who were the enemies of God's people. Jesus who comes to welcome women and children into his kingdom. I mean, the Samaritan woman at the world, that is an intersection of all sorts, right? Massive. That is what Jesus is showing us here. A woman who was divorced, five times, who's a Samaritan. Here is Jesus who comes not only to fulfill the law, but to lay his life down for us, to fulfill the prophecies of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to turn our idolatrous hearts of stone into hearts of flesh that can truly live for God, that can live in the spirit, growing Christ-likeness, and live for God as his people should. Here comes Jesus to take that law, to fulfill God's mission to bring God's people beyond anything that we have ever seen. That is why Ezra actually ends in disappointment but brings us hope. 
into the wonderful Savior Ezra is pointing us to. But there's lots of good that we can learn from the book of Ezra, and I hope that, that it's been helpful as we've gone through this series. But as it ends, it leaves us with that question, is this it? And Jesus says, no, it's not, because I'm coming. Our wonderful Savior, our greatest friend, the sacrificial bridegroom, our mighty King. Praise God for Jesus. He has come to give us life. He's come to enable us to remember God's promise and his faithfulness. He's come by his spirit to enable us to fight against sin. He comes to bring us together, to fight together as his people. Let's keep looking to him as our hope, even in the disappointment of how Ezra ends. Let's pray together. Father, we praise you for our great and mighty Savior, the Lord Jesus. The one who comes as the greater Ezra, as the greater Nehemiah, who in this disappointment that we see comes to fulfill all, to give us life, to point us to where to go, to come back to God's promise that he is with his people, that he rescues his people, he forgives his people, and he gives them life. Who comes to not just leave us to be on our own, but now by his spirit enables us to fight against sin and the battles that we face in this world. And who brings us together as his body, as his people, as his church. To see his glory and to fight together as his people. Father, praise you for Jesus. Even in the disappointments that we see in this world, help us to keep looking to him, our only hope, our only savior. And we pray this in his mighty name. Amen.